Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I want to speak to you this morning on the back of what we started last week, which is the subject of yieldedness or the power of a yielded heart. Just a few things that I want to recap on so that we catch the flow again for those of you who weren't here last week. We started by painting a prophetic picture the week before, and it kind of gave us an idea of the things that God has been speaking to us as a fellowship over the past few, not just weeks, but months. And it was as though this prophetic picture is it paints something that woos us into it. It draws us in. It gives us a desire to see it come to fruition and to flow with it. And I use the example of Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel had a vision and he saw himself on the banks of a river and the angel measured a thousand cubits and he went in up to his ankles and then up to his knees and then up to his waist. And again he measured and he went into the river so deep it was that, and it was so strong a flow that you, you could no longer stand and he went with the river. And he painted this beautiful picture of being sort of swept away in the spirit. But the interesting thing is that he was brought right back to the place where he started from. And while these prophetic words to us as a fellowship paint a picture and they kind of woo us in and they draw us to this desire for what we love to see God do in our lives as well as in our spiritual family, the place that we always have to start from is the place where we are. And God paints wonderful pictures for us of promises, of prophetic words, but yet we always have to start applying those and working us towards those from the place where we are. And no matter where we are, whether it's ankle, whether it's knee, whether it's waist, there's always room for us to grow in the Lord. That should be one of the most encouraging things. Sometimes we lose sight of the river. Sometimes our attention is diverted to other things that seem pressing or important. But I believe in this time and season, the Holy Spirit is calling us back to set our hearts on Him in such a way that we will allow Him to take us into the fullness of all that He has for us. See, God paints for us this canvas of identity and of promises only to usher us into the fullness of them, one brush stroke at a time. It happens one day at a time, one moment of worship at a time, one act of grace and love at a time, one prayer at a time, one act of kindness at a time. But as we take those steps or yield in those ways and pray those prayers. It's every one is a little step deeper into the lover of our souls. That's the flow we want to enter into. That's the direction we want to go. So what does God require from us to bring us into the fullness of who He is? He calls us, He woos us, but He requires something of us, and that is to yield. My definition of yielding, I mean, there's many out there, but in the context of what I'm sharing with you, my definition of yielding is to cease from resistance. We often talk so much in the church about resisting evil and resisting the devil and resisting temptation and standing strong in the Lord. But I've come to realize in my life and as I've walked out my life in the church with many other people, so often the person that we resist the most is actually the Holy Spirit of God. 
So much of the struggles we face and so many of the things we, that, that try us and vex us are not because we have to resist them, it's because we failed to yield to someone else who will give us his love, his desires, his overcoming power and victory. This is our battlefield. To yield to God, to cease from resisting him. It's about giving up our ideas and desires and embracing what God says is best for us. Now that's a painful process often. It's a costly process because we want the things we want, right? But how many of you know that the things God wants for you are infinitely better than the things you could ever want for yourself? But we lose sight of that, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that God has far bigger and far better plans for our lives than we can ever ask, think, or even imagine if we will yield. You see, the power of grace and faith are found not in our striving, not in our ability to try and make them happen, not in how much effort and energy we put in, but it's in our ability to yield and receive from Him, the giver of life, the giver of grace. It's not in the effort, it's in the yielding. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not even of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the realization we need to have, folks, is this, that if I yield to one, I must therefore resist all others. And the strength of my resistance to all others is determined by the wholeness of my yieldedness to the one. The measure of strength I have in resisting is determined by the measure of yieldedness I have to the one. At the heart of sin is an unwillingness to yield to God. That's the heart of all sin. I want to do it my way. Don't we all? But here's what we need to understand, and this is why I believe that this, this teaching series is so powerful. To resist to God is to yield, to resist God, sorry, is inadvertently to yield to somebody else. When I begin to resist God, His word in my life, His truth in my life, what He says about me, what He would like me to do, when I begin to kick against that, I automatically begin to yield to someone else. I want to say to you this morning that yielding establishes lordship in our lives. Whoever or whatever voice we yield to is the voice that is lord in our lives. Now what is lord? Lord is the one who is master. It's very easy to say that Jesus is savior because there's no expectation on me for that. I simply receive this wonderful gift of life that he has given to me. But it's altogether a different story to say that Jesus is my Lord, that he is my master, that I serve at his pleasure. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says this, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. You see, folks, there's only two sources of any thought that you may have or any action that you may do in your life. There's only two sources. It's either of God or it's not of God. 
Now, in this world that we live in, where there's 150 shades of gray, not just the 50, there's so many nuances. Oh, is this God? Or is this not God? Or this seems good, or that seems bad. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Don't you agree? But every thought that we think has one of two origins. It's either from God or it's not. And I have to choose very carefully which one I yield to. You see, it's not just to do with what I say, this, the submitting myself to an influence doesn't just have to do with what I say or what I do, but the influence that I yield to has a transformative impact on my heart. Did you know that? What you yield to has a transformative impact upon your life. You take on the nature of that which you yield to. This is why peer pressure and the power of, so, of association is, is so powerful. Because as you yield, you begin to take on the likeness. Just think of peer pressure in a school situation. How many of you faced that? In my day, when I was in school, it was cool to smoke. I remember primary school. It was cool to smoke. And if you wanted to be cool, you had to smoke. And so you had to conform and yield to that. So you became like everybody else who thought they were cool. Sorry? You didn't have to. No, I didn't have to, but I, I, I tried. I tried. And you know what I realized? Didn't make me cool. <laughs> Didn't make me cool at all. It just made people laugh at me. <laughs> I remember trying that, and it, it didn't work out so well for me. But you see, what was the issue there? There was a voice around me that I wanted to yield to. And in order to yield to it, I began to embrace its value system. I began to embrace its way of thinking and follow along. And I want to say to you, the value systems of this world and the voices of this world are strong. They will speak loudly to you about what you should look like, about how wealthy you should be, about how you should treat your family and your loved ones, about how you should treat people who wrong you. Those voices are strong. God's voice often isn't. God's voice is often very gentle. But we have the choice whom we will yield to. It's called freedom of choice. Whether we will follow God's plan for our lives or not. We call it destiny. Have you ever heard somebody say he was destined for that? He was destined to do that thing. That thing was destined to happen. What is destiny? What is destiny? Do you believe that God has a destiny for you? We've often heard people say he entered into his God-given destiny. I believe God has a destiny for every single one of us, if we will yield to it. Amen? Some people are destined to live. Others are destined to die. What determines it? Who they yield to. God articulates it this way. Deuteronomy chapter 30 19 to 20. In the message, he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I place before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life that you and your children will live and love God, your God. Listen obediently to Him, firmly embracing Him. Oh yes, he is life itself, a long, settled, a long life settled on the soil that God, your God, promised to give your ancestors, Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. You see, God gives us the freedom to choose what kind of life we will lead. We all know and we understand that. But I want to say this to you. It doesn't automatically happen. Many Christians live their lives as though they made one decision for Christ and think that all the promises of God are just automatically going to come upon them. They're going to have this wonderful life without any troubles, without any stresses, and it's just going to automatically happen. I want to say to you today, this yieldedness to Jesus is not a thing we do once off, but it is a choice that requires our active and ongoing participation. This journey of faith is not a journey in isolation where it's just me walking out there. It's a journey holding the hand of our Savior, feeling Him pull us this way or nudge us that way. It is an intimate union where I consider how my partner in this thing feels all the way along. When I go somewhere with my wife, I'm cognizant of how she is feeling about something. Something may happen in a situation. And I can sense she's uncomfortable. Or something may happen in a situation and I can sense her heart is blessed and overjoyed. I want to tell you, it is that real and it is that tangible as we walk with the Spirit of God. If we tune in, if we yield and listen for His voice, we can very quickly pick up the rhythms of God's heart as we go throughout our day. Someone shouts and screams at us. Their taxi cuts us off. What rhythm are you feeling right about then? It's not the rhythms of grace, most likely, unless your level of sanctification is way beyond the majority. But there is a rhythm in that moment where you can sense, Lord, how do you feel about this right now? And the thing is, with God, He always looks beyond the action, and He always looks into the heart. He looks into the heart of a man who knows that if he doesn't pick up enough people and get them there on time, he's not getting paid today. And he's got three kids to support of his own. And there's compassion in it. You see, we just look at that action. Now, does that make the action okay? No, certainly not. Does it? No, certainly not. But there's always more to it, isn't there? And when we can begin to pick up on that heartbeat, we begin to see through the exterior to the heart, and that is where God does His business. You begin to see beyond the difficult person in your office who is just cranky perpetually. And through prayer, you begin to see beyond that. And God is able to show you things that you can speak into a situation, words of life, because you're listening to the author of life rather than listening to every other influence and the... And the the glaring things that come at you. I want to say to you that this is exercised not by the force of our will in trying to be Jesus to everyone, but by the yieldedness of our heart to His influence with his with, which is with us always. Again from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, it says, And do not present your members. What does this mean? This means that these members of mine, this body, my physical members, as well as my mind, my will, my emotions, my soul, can be presented to an influence. Amen? We spoke about those two voices, those two sources. And here Paul writes and he says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to God as being alive 
from the dead. You see, many of us just struggle with the first one. I don't want to do this. And so I strive and I struggle to keep myself from this temptation or this weakness in me. Uh, but, and and, and I'm, on a Sunday morning, it's all well. Until Monday afternoon, someone pushes that button. And it's all my focus on trying to keep it all together. We just try and focus on the do not present. I mustn't present. I mustn't present. The ability to do that is found in the next, the next section. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you or lordship. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Like I said, folks, this is something that we do day by day and moment by moment. Is it easy? It depends. <laughs> is it easy in the flesh? No. The truth is, it's impossible in the flesh. It's impossible in the flesh. You know, Winston Churchill made this statement years ago. He was speaking to a group of RAF pilots before they were going to go on a, a mission that was critical to the British war effort. And he said to them, Men, sometimes it's not enough to do your best. Sometimes you have to do what is required. What did he mean? He meant they couldn't come back from this mission saying, We missed our targets, but we tried our best. It just wasn't going to be good enough. Many of us live our Christian life in that place of trying our best. And the realization is this. Your best was never going to be good enough. You know, when I had a revelation of that, I had, it was the most liberating revelation. Man, I threw up my arms and I said, God, I can't. And he said, I know. I've been trying to tell you this all along. But that revelation in my heart was the key that unlocked an understanding of what it means to yield to the grace, to the ability, to the life, to the power of Jesus working in me, doing in me that which I was unable to do, in my very motives, in my very desires, beginning to... That which I once struggled with because it was so attractive to my flesh, it lost its luster when I yield it to something that is truly powerful and beautiful and amazing, the person of Jesus Christ. So I know this is not easy, but let me tell you a story. There was a man and his wife. They lived in Cape Town, sort of born to Hillville area many years ago, many, many years ago, long before cell phones and all the rest, and his wife was struggling with Serious bloating and water retention. And so she went to the hospital one morning and three days later she returned to her husband holding a baby. It wasn't water retention after all. And she walked in and she said to him, and he said to his wife, And that? And which she, she looked at him and said, Does Jonah? That name stuck and there's a whole book in the Bible about him. Okay, he didn't come out of Born to Heaven, but I thought that was good. I want to talk to you this morning about something that I call Jonah Syndrome. Jonah Syndrome. And this is not Jonah Syndrome, it's the Jonah, the person, Syndrome. Uh, I want to just give you a little bit of a background about 
the timing of the book of Jonah when it was written. You see, unlike most prophetic books, which are a prophet articulating the word of God, Jonah is different. Because Jonah is a story about the prophet of God. It paints a prophetic picture of the three days that Christ spent in the belly of the earth. And Jesus actually mentions that later on in his gospel, in the gospel of Matthew. And I think John as well. But this is also a prophetic story that was told after the time of, Israel, of exile. From Babylon, the people came back to Jerusalem. And the people had become very insular. Jerusalem was now being established once again. And the people of Israel made it really all just about themselves and their own personal well-being. So here's the story of Jonah. God speaks to... Um, Jonah, it's a, a four-chapter book. It's not a long book at all. I encourage you to read it. You'll do it easily in one sitting. I'll just narrate the story for you for the sake of time. God speaks to this man called Jonah. He's a prophet of God. And he says to him, Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach for them because lest I destroy them for their sin. So Jonah gets up and he literally heads in the opposite direction. Jonah says, I do not want to go to Nineveh. Those people are the scum of the earth. They are our enemies. I want nothing to do with them. They deserve destruction and your judgment. So Jonah climbs on a boat. He doesn't want to just stay away. He wants to get away from the call of God on his life. What do you call that? I call that fierce resistance. So along the way, a storm comes up. And it's amazing. The sailors on the boat all realize this storm is something very strange. There's a supernatural force at work here. And they start trying to ask, they pray to all their gods, trying to figure out why the storm is happening. They, they cast lots, and they discover that it's Jonah. It's his fault. He's the reason that the storm is happening. Jonah says, well, the solution is quite simple. Throw me overboard and kill me, and, and the storm will stop. Which seems very benevolent of Jonah. But the truth is, he's, you know, he would quite frankly rather die than go to Nineveh. That's how strong his hatred is. So the people obliged. The sailors beat us on your head. God forgive us. And they throw Jonah into the sea and immediately calm settles upon the waters. But as, Joseph, jo as Jonah starts sinking into the water, we know the story about the big fish. Now there's been a lot of controversy about this big fish. Um, there was a little girl, in fact, one day and her teacher was talking about this huge whale in school. And, and she said, ma'am, is that the same kind of whale that swallowed Jonah? And, and the teacher said, no, my girl, that's just a fairy tale. She goes, no, but it's true. She says, no, it's, not. it's just a fairy tale. She says, but it's in the Bible. The teacher says, my girl, it's just a fairy tale. She says, ma'am, one day when I go to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. To which the teacher smugly said, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? The little girl replied, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> So Jonah gets swallowed by the fish. And three days later, see, in, in, in the belly of the fish, Jonah, the book's, Jonah has this moment of repentance where he starts singing a psalm to God inside the belly of the fish. His singing really wasn't very good. It made the fish nauseous. And the fish vomited him up on the shore. So, jo so Jonah now, having repented, but still calloused of heart, makes his way to Nineveh. Nineveh was a huge city, about 120,000 people in the city. It was three or four days' walk across 
That's how big the city was. So Jonah travels an entire day's journey into the middle of the city, and he delivers his mighty prophetic word. His word was this. If you, you will be destroyed. Well, in, his word was this. In 40 days, the city will be turned upside down. In Hebrew, that's five words. He spoke five words, and that's all he could muster. But those five words carried so much weight and so much anointing that everybody from king to cattle, yes, you heard me, king to the cattle, they put sackcloth on the cows. The cows were repenting. The whole city turned to God, and God had mercy on them and saved them. And we kind of think that that's the end of the story, and we go, wow, how powerful God is and how merciful He is. But that's only up to the end of chapter 3. There's still a whole nother chapter that we forget. And this chapter, to me, speaks louder than all the rest. Jonah, after he has delivered this word, goes out of the city again, up onto a hill, and he's now overlooking the city. And you may think in his heart, he's done this great thing, he's feeling full of himself and proud. He is nothing but bitter and angry. And he shouts to God, he said, this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh, because I knew you to be merciful, and I knew you'd forgive this rotten scum. And he's giving it to God. He is angry, because in his own indignation, indignation and self-righteousness, they didn't deserve mercy. And as he's sitting there in all his anger, in the middle of the, in all his anger, that night God causes a tree to grow up right next to him and give him shade the following day as he's sitting there and he's watching over this. And in that night, God sends a worm to eat the tree, to eat the tree, and he eats all the leaves. And so the next day, Jonah's sitting there, it says he's baking in the hot sun, he's baking inside, he's baking outside, and he's angry at God. And God says, Why are you angry about a tree? He's, now, he's not only angry about Nineveh, he's angry about this tree that came up in this stupid worm. And God says to him, why are you angry about a tree? that you had, no, you had no business planting it there, you didn't cause it to grow, nor did you cause it to, to go away. And let me read the last few verses, the last few verses of Jonah chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. I'll read from the message. It says, God said, what is this? How is it that you can change your feelings from pleasure to anger overnight about a mere shade tree that you that you did nothing to get. You neither planted or watered it. It grew up one night and died the next. So why can't I likewise change how, what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know they're right from wrong to say nothing of all the innocent animals. And that ends the book. That ends the book of Jonah. With a question from God. Now, when we look at the book of Jonah, it reflects on us, and we see ourselves in it in so many ways. How poignant is this book? Let me, let, let me bring this into our current perspective of our country. What is the, the current big thing that's happening in the media, the big push? Anybody know? Sorry? That's right. Violence against women and children. Violence against women and children. And we're indignant and we're all standing up and we're shouting judgment and justice. Is that good? Is that right? Yes, it is. We should be standing up and shouting justice and righteousness 
But let me ask you, how would you feel if God said He wanted to give mercy? Now that's not a popular message right now, is it? That's not a message you can go out and preach there to the mom and dad that's just had their daughter be assaulted. But it brings us to the place. Sorry to keep you up. It brings us to the place where we have to recognize the sovereignty of God and the lordship of God and the benevolent mercy of God when we like it and when we don't, when we understand it and when we don't. Here for me is the saddest part of the whole narrative of Jonah. You never hear from him again. That's it. He couldn't get over himself, and that's where his ministry ends. He's mentioned in the book of Kings, I think it is, where he gives a prophecy to an evil king, and he tells him that things are going to go well with you and you're going to have victory, and a little while later, Amos tells the same king exactly the, same, exactly the opposite. <laughs> because you are evil, you're going to have defeat. We read about him again in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, the Gospels, where Jesus refers back to Jonah in the same... And he's basically, his reference is this, in the same way that Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so too the Son of Man needs to spend three days in the belly of the earth and he will rise again alive. But in terms of prophetic words, in terms of miracles, in terms of being used by God, that is the end. That's the end of his story. Moping on a hill, feeling sad and sorry for himself. Folks, God's struggle is not with our sin. That's already got dealt with. God's struggle is with the unyielded, self-gratifying hearts of His people. Where we sit and we feel sorry for ourselves. And we command God about what we think He should do. And we fail to yield to what it is that He wants us to do because maybe we don't agree. Or because maybe we don't understand. The primary way that we resist God in our lives, folks... Hear me, it's not by going and deliberately sinning. The primary way that we resist what God wants to do in our lives is by thinking we know better. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did. This is exactly what Saul did when he thought he could sacrifice offerings. It led to him losing the kingdom. This is exactly what Samson did. He thought he knew better. He was stronger than that. I mean, Delilah, this little old woman, what could she do? That's exactly what Jonah did. Jonah thought he knew better. And even after God performed this wondrous miracle, this salvation story, he still thought he knew better. He judged God's actions to have been wrong and unjust and unrighteous. You see, Jesus, as we spoke last week, was the antithesis of this. The very Son of God was so humble before His Father, having given up all glory and power, Kneeling in the garden of the Gethsemane, still said, God, if there's any other way, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Like Jonah, there are times when we reluctantly do what God says, but yet we're not satisfied with the outcomes. Oh, you know, pastor told me, I need to give. I need to tithe. You know what happened? Church got more money. I got less. Nothing changed. Heart remains untouched. 
Oh, I prayed about that. Nothing happened. Oh, I tried doing it God's way, but it didn't work for me. No, the truth is, you didn't give your heart to that. You were just like Jonah. You went and did some kind of outward thing because the consequence of not doing it is probably more motivation than the reward of doing it. What reward? The reward of knowing that I've done the will of my God and of my Father. What higher honor and reward could there be in this life? To know that we have lived out the destiny that God has laid out before us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship. The work of His hands. His poem written before the foundations of the world. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says this. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? That means I've got to say, Lord, I yield to you. And I'm going to do it with my whole heart. Not begrudgingly, not begrudgingly or of necessity, but just to give who I am to you that you may be glorified through me. I tried doing it God's way, but it didn't work for me. Well, of course not. You know why? You know why it doesn't work for us? <laughs> because it was never about me. It was never about how I feel. In fact, the, whole, the problem in the whole situation generally is just me. What was the problem in the book of Jonah? An unyielded heart. God had no trouble, no trouble saving an entire city of 120,000 people with five words. No problems there. God's able to do that. Where did God struggle? In the yieldedness of one man's heart. Where is it? That, does God have a problem providing for you? No, He does not. Does God have a problem healing you? No, He does not. Does God have a problem making a way for you and bringing you into the fullness of everything He's promised? No! He has no problems in any of those spheres. He's already made it all available. The only struggle He has is to get it into our thick heads. <laughs> the only struggle He has is with our stubbornness, our unwillingness to yield, our perpetual resistance to the things that God wants to do. Why? Because we think we know better. I want to pursue this thing because it's pleasurable to me. The principle of yieldedness to God is our greatest weapon in the arsenal, in the arsenal of the believer. I want to say to you this morning, I, I think there are some of us here today, and we can all identify with us in some way or another, that continue to resist we don't honor God with our minds. We hold on to our own opinions and our understanding, and we place more emphasis there above God's Word. I, let me give you some silly examples. I know this movie is probably not good for me, but I want to watch it anyways. I know this book is unscriptural and is talking about all kinds of things, and, but it's, it's, it's just to unwind. It's just to relax. What am I doing? I'm yielding myself to somebody else and in so doing, resisting the very word of God that he wants to speak into my heart to give me life, to give me strength. We don't honor God with our decisions. Our convenience trumps all. I'll do it if it's convenient or expedient for me. Not, Lord, what would you have me do? No matter the cost, I will follow. We don't honor God with our bodies. We give ourselves over to sin rather than to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Remember, yieldedness establishes lordship. And I want to say to you this morning, as we've looked at Jonah, 
as we looked at how God worked with him and, and tried with him and, and, and really tried to get Jonah on his side, I want to say to you, don't let your story end here. Jonah refused to yield, and when he finally gave way, he did it with a heart that was not in the right place. And the truth is, his story ended there. We don't know what happened to Jonah after that, but we know that it was that no more prophetic words are recorded, no mighty miracles recorded. That was it. He probably lived out his days in bitterness and anger towards God. Don't be a Jonah. This world struggles with Jonah syndrome. Don't be a Jonah. Don't let your story end here. Would you stand with me? Because I want to give you an opportunity this morning by leading you in a prayer. Just close your eyes and bow your heads with me. Now, if there's an area in your heart where you know that you have been resisting God, maybe it's in the area of spiritual disciplines, time with Him. Maybe it's in the area of your finances, where you've not been honoring God with your finances. Maybe it's in the area of decisions, where because of the past or because of your own thinking, you've determined a way forward because of how you feel about it, not because, say, not because God has spoken over that area. Maybe it's in the area of a relationship where God has told you that this relationship is not for you. Or maybe it's in the area of a relationship where there is pain and unforgiveness. Maybe it's in the area of your self-esteem, how you see yourself. You choose to believe what others say rather than to believe what the Word of God says. I've put my finger on a few key areas this morning. But I want to ask you that right now, are you ready to yield or do you want your story to end there? Do you want the way you feel now in Tibet today to be the way that you feel 10, 15, 20 years from now? Do you want that limitation on you any moment longer? I don't. And so if you feel that there are things in your heart that you need to yield to the Lord now, let's do that in prayer together. Pray with me. Father God, I come before you this morning to acknowledge your Lordship. Jesus, you are more than just my Savior. But you are my Lord. I thank you that you love me. That your plans and purposes for me are good that you have a destiny unfolding for me. And it is good. Father, I want to yield to you today. To the leading of your Spirit. To my King, Jesus. And though I may have committed my life before, I recognize that I am resisting your hand. And I want you now, just where you are in your heart before God, to mention that area. Let's repent of that thing. Let's be very specific about what we're yielding to the Lord right now. I'll give you a minute.
Father, you've heard this prayer of my heart. Let's pray that with me. Father, you've heard this prayer of my heart. You have heard my confession. I surrender this thing to you now. And I say, Father, in my heart and in my life, come and have your way. I lay down my opinions. I lay down my rights to choose that you may be, show your power on my behalf and receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.